Hello and welcome. It's great to be back again and thanks for joining us. Now, in the hot seat today, we have Craig Hanna, who's the Director of Product Management at Acquia. And Craig is here to talk about, talk with me about product management and what it actually means in the real world, as opposed to in theory or in the classroom. So a little bit of background, but Craig's going to dig into this. So he, he formed a, a he co-founded or founded a company called Cohesion, which was later acquired by a big company, which we'll learn more about, Acquia. So he's got the war wounds, both from a startup perspective, of actually getting a product up and running, and then integrating it into a much larger mothership where there's lots of products when they were acquired by Acquia. So it should make for an interesting discussion with some really good pointers of what to do and what to avoid. And at this stage, I would normally ask my guests to talk about the company that they're currently in. But I think it's probably better, Craig, in this instance, to start off with Cohesion. And then we can work through to your current company, Acquia. From what I understand is you were there, you saw an opportunity in the market very early on. So, Craig, welcome. Do you want to give us a little bit of a, a, a sort of intro and a bit of background on Cohesion and how it came about? Sure. So, as you said, Cohesion was a technology startup. We saw an opportunity in, in the market um, to work uh, alongside Drupal. Drupal is a great platform for, for building websites. It, it powers, I think, 4 or 5% of the web. But if you look at the top million sites, it powers an awful lot more. So, you know, a lot wow. of larger sites, um, you know, use Drupal to power them, whether it's large pharma companies, whether it's large government, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, so a considerable mm-hmm. part of the web that you use um, is built on Drupal. But Drupal, you know, by its nature, it's kind of more of a, less of a CMS in a way, more of a framework. So it's very developer heavy, which is great because it can you can do almost anything you want, you know, with it because it's so powerful, but it means you need a lot of developers and technology. And that included, you know, to do things that, you know, I didn't think and we didn't think were, the right jobs for developers to be doing. So I'll give you examples, you know, spinning up spinning up websites and, and then building pages or editing content, et cetera. So we saw an opportunity to, to build a platform inside Drupal, if you like, which was called Cohesion, to enable low-code site building and page building and content updating without the need for developers. And that allowed developers to concentrate on the hard stuff that they're good at, i.e. building applications and integrations, and then freed up, you know, enabled a wider team to get involved in, in, in the project. So, for example, marketers or content authors or, you know, whoever it might be, less technical people to be involved in the site building and the page building, et cetera. And, and so we launched that and it was, it was, it worked, you know, I mean, actually, you know, it's background before that was um, it span out of an agency who, you know, had the same problems Like they had Drupal developers, couldn't find enough of them. Um, salaries are high for Drupal developers that are good. And they wanted to, to you know, to move some of that, that, that lifting, if you like, when they were doing projects to, to other people. And it worked really well. I mean, efficiencies gains were significant. Um, you know, sites were being built, you know, several times faster and quicker and easier with less resources. So, so that was great, you know, because we all face the same problem when we come to t- technology as customers, clients, not unreasonably, you know, are always looking to have to get more value from their site builds budgets, you know, budgets perhaps don't follow the, the same rise as the specifications. Plus also the web is harder now, right? You've got to, multiple devices, um, you know, to, to think for us. It's, it's, it's hard. So this was a time saver and, a, a resor- and it moved resources, which was, which was critical. Okay, so let me just get that right. So you had an agency, you're building websites for your clients using Drupal, this quite complex sort of developer-led code, but clients want to be able to do things on themselves without pulling in 
expensive developers, etc. So you built this. Is it a layer, some sort of platform on top of Drupal? Was that is that what Cohesion was? Yeah, correct. I mean, the way Drupal works is you have a module. So we, we, it, it's um, Cohesion, as it was then called. It's now called Site Studio. We'll get to that in a moment. But Cohesion is a module, but then it's essentially an API service. So um, one of the things, one way to think about it is that the module provides a UI inside Drupal. So like drag and drop menus, so you can drag and drop stuff around, so you can you know, do stuff without having to code. You know, that includes not just page building, but includes, you know, styling your website, um, your site settings, your fonts, everything, you know, quite detailed. Um, but then we use an API service. So I think that is more of like a like automated code writing. So we kind of like, we, you use the UI to kind of create what you want, and then it goes off to our um, to our API service, which then writes the code and puts the code back into to Drupal in, in the way that it would if you were hard coding it. So, you know, twig files, the CSS, et cetera, goes back into the site. But it just takes that, you know, it's just done through a visual interface instead. Gotcha, gotcha. So something like, I don't know, tell me if this is right or wrong, Unbounce, which is that landing page builder. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Just very mm-hmm. much a sort of G, the, the 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 system was able to drag and drop. You could actually you know get a marketeer could build a landing page without developing without involving <laughs> something like that. Yeah, a little bit. So 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 there's a kind of mix of how do you keep the enterprise tooling that Drupal has. One of the reasons Drupal is used by large organisations is things like you know the workflow that it has, the version control that the security it has, the number of users, consecutive users you can have easily. But as I said, it was developer happy, but developer heavy. But as you say, you know, expectations are not necessarily set by what's in front of them. We all, you know, we all compare when we do when we go online. We don't compare ourselves to some small company in the corner. We're always comparing ourselves to to Amazon or you know where we spend our Facebook, where we spend our time. And so, likewise, you know, marketers were using you know tools like Unbounce, but also you know WordPress or or even some of the more you know smaller startups. So they were drag and dropping things on the page. And there, there, there was an expectation, but why can't I do that when I go to work? I can do that for my hobby, but I can't do it for work. It's more complex. And so okay. we're trying to solve that problem. So give that sort of almost like consumer web building experience, but in an enterprise environment. So you don't lose the workflow. You don't use, lose the security. You don't lose the versioning, but you do gain that kind of drag and drop, easy assembly that you're gotcha. used to in other products. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. All right. So this, when was this, Craig? When, when was this? When, when did Cohesion start? So Cohesion um, started um, around about 2000 and I want to say, oh, 16, maybe, something like that, 15, 16. Um, okay. We had a Drupal 7 version, and then we rewrote it based on what we learned, classic MVP um, um, from product development perspective, and then rewrote yeah. it in Drupal 8 um, to be better than it was in the first version. Uh, Drupal 8 was also a significant change for Drupal, so we kind of had to re-engineer it as well because it, it, it had moved its its kind of underlying um, architecture as well. So about, gotcha. about five, six years ago, probably, it, it started okay. as a project. Okay, great. So give me an idea of the size of the company. So you've got this, you've got this uh, agency, Cajun, this product sort of developed out of it. Um, and what was your role in it? Yeah, so it was split off as a separate company, you know, because we realized that there was something there. So when we did, when we built the, you know, when it was, the decision was made to rebuild it, you know, we had something here, we've done the Drupal 7 version, we're going to rebuild it in Drupal 8, we had something, we knew it was working, we kind of proven it internally, that it mm. gave these efficiencies. We split it off as a separate company, uh, and we raised money. Um, in order to build the product properly, if you like, gotcha. just, um, right. you know, so we, and we hired engineers. It was a small team. I mean, I think we were, you know, around 14, 15 people, which for yeah. building a, you know, for building an enterprise tool is, is small. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and as always with these learnings, which, um, you know, you, you learn over time, um, we, we probably under-raised um, 
had faster timelines than we thought would go. You know, it takes twice as long, costs twice as much, as, as the old saying goes, right? Um, and even though you know it going in, it still happens for some reason. So, uh, so it took us longer. Um, and then I think around probably about, it took us probably about 18 months of development before we had a kind of um, sellable product, if you like. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we'd, we'd been introducing it to people. Um, and we started, probably started putting websites live on it, if you like, actual live customers with large um, live websites in around 2017, I'm going to say, for these mm-hmm. rough, rough mm-hmm. timelines, around 2017. Um, one of the things that we learned quite quickly was it's a great tool. Um, it, you know, it's still running now. We'll come to that in a minute. It gives all these efficiencies, but it does ask people to work in a different way. And one of the things that we, you know, we, we've learned was that actually, you know, take for example, we thought it would be a great, you know, tool uh, for for agencies, and it is. But there's also you know, people like the way they did things yesterday sometimes, and and mm-hmm. you also think about we're going to we're going to them and saying, all right. So we could now enable you to build sites faster so you, and with less Drupal developers and then give your customers the ability to do more themselves, like the page building themselves. Sounds great until you talk to an agency leader and they go, yeah, but I've got 30 Drupal developers I need to keep busy. Um, and they like the idea, but they, they, they have to hire new people. They have to change the process. And, and our, our, our discussion with them would be, well, yes, but you're also winning. You're, trying, you're right there trying to win business you know and rfps or whatever it might be and so the more value you can add to your customer the more there's a business you're going to win but it's a change in mindset you know the reality is they make their money by having 30 drupal developers on an hourly rate or day rate that they charge out right now obviously that changes over time but what, what you know and you know we've got great adoption now but it was harder to get that adoption especially early on because obviously again people go who are your customers? We're like, well, we only have a couple right now. And they go, okay, well, come back when you've got 20. <laughs> and, uh, sure. And so you have, you certainly have that. Um, but what we did realize quite early on um, was that if you flip that over and you get, went directly to clients, especially larger clients who, who've got you know, large digital estates, it was costing them a lot of money. They were reinventing the wheel over and over again. Mm-hmm. They loved it. They were like, ah, oh, okay, great. This is great for us. It's going to reduce our costs. It gives us the ability to do more. So we we end up switching into some ways. And we've got lots of great agency partners today, but we ended up switching a lot of our sales focus towards directly enterprise because they were the they were the budget holders, they were the decision makers, they were the ones that actually had the pain points of wait a minute, I want to update, you know, I want to run a campaign, I want to create a new page. My marketing team does. Oh, hang on a minute, I need the developer involved in that process. What way to why? That's just slowing me down. I'm not able to move at the speed of my customer. You know, which is which is an expression that a lot of them used was, you know, I'm 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 being I'm having to to, to go at the speed of either my IT team internally or my agency rather than the speed of my customer. And, and you, as we know, the world just keeps speeding up, right? And if you can't get stuff out quickly, it doesn't look great, right? Customers don't like it. Um, and, and you can't respond to what's going on in the market. Um, so we found that the enterprise uh, the enterprise loved it, but um, that came with its own challenges because enterprise sales, you know, you, we, it's easy to find agencies, to talk to agencies. Enterprise sales is, is a different game. I don't think we realized we'd built such an enterprise product, which sounds weird, but, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes when you go into this, you don't always know where the end point is. And so we built a product which is very much enterprise. I mean, we've got, you know, companies using it for single sites, but I would say, you know, considerable amount of our revenue now is large enterprises doing, you know, multi, you know, we call it the multi-multi problem, you know, multi-brand, multi-site, multi-region. And that's, you know, that's the vast majority of our company. So it's very enterprise. And, and that was great. We got a, a lot of... Um, Great feedback. Started working with a couple of customers, um, but the infrastructure you need, um, you know, it's 
quite considerable to manage enterprise customers, right? So it was just it was just a learning experience that we sort of kind of developed something that we was a little bit different than we thought we built. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not from a functional perspective, but from a who are where our sweet spot was in the go to market, for example, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. slightly different than we expected. Yeah, and I think that's quite sort of par for the course, Craig, isn't it? I mean, we you start off building a product, you think it's for a particular audience. Actually, feedback then tells you, actually, no, do you know what? Actually, it's a, there's a different market here and you have to mm. pivot and you have to adjust and it's about feedback and it's about talking to the customers, isn't it? It's about that. And presumably, as a, as a product manager, as opposed to a product marketeer, that's really the essence of the job, isn't it? Tell me, or is it? You know, it's, it's really talking Ooh. to like getting that qualitative in, input from your prospects, from the market, and then developing the product based on that. Do you want to talk me through a bit of that and how you did that with with cohesion and and what 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 lessons have you learned that if you were doing it again, you would maybe do differently? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. Um, so. I mean, obviously, we, we you know before this product was ready. I mean, a we had the MVP that we talked about, and you know we mm. went to Drupal conferences with uh, wireframes, and you know had conversations with people. Did that whole, as you say, that product research. The problem I think we had was twofold. Um, the the first one was we were we were creating something that didn't exist, right? So, so when you get feedback as a product manager, it's really easy to get incremental feedback. So right now, the product's much more mature now. We're in 2022. I have got, you know, thousands of websites, hundreds of customers. And so, you know, getting that product feedback um, and the incremental improvements that they want to see is it's quite easy. I've got lots of people to talk to. They understand the product because they're using it and they give me feedback. But when you go to somebody and go, hey, I've got a completely new way of doing something. You know, I know you're doing it that way, but this is going to be completely new. It's going to have it's going to be low code, which wasn't really a thing, by the way, five or six years ago, the way it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to do it completely different. It's very hard to get because you know good feedback because you're you know quite often people are like yeah, but I'm I'm happy the way I am. It's the I, you know I know I know people say it's not a real quote, but I still like it. You know the the, the whole uh, Ford um, quote of if I'd asked my customers, they'd have asked for a faster horse, right? And it's like when you make when you make bigger changes in technology, it's actually quite hard for people to understand. And that, that happens you know a lot. You know, that the Apple story is similar, right? It's like, you know, they wouldn't have got to where they've got if they listened, you know, they'd done it incrementally, they threw the book away, started again, which is great. Um so I don't know what I would have done differently. Um maybe been a little bit um tried harder to get that feedback maybe try you know maybe we should have realized that it was more of an enterprise tool um i, I yeah it's a, it's a difficult one because i've done other products before and as i say it's like if you're you know incrementally improving a, a problem then that's fine i think i, I actually i think if there was what was one it was keeping to drill drill down even more and more on what the real pain points you're solving, right? If you're going to ask someone to, to part money with you, whether it's a consumer, whether it's B2B, you have to find the pain point. What pain am I actually solving here? Am I a vitamin or a painkiller? So a vitamin just makes you, you know, feel a little bit better about what you're doing, but you know, how much will you pay for that? Or are you a painkiller as I'm really solving a customer pay, pain point of some sort? And drilling down on that in a lot more detail and really understanding, because I think we made a, quite a few assumptions about the pain point and we were wrong. Luckily, and I think there was an element of luck, which I think there is in all companies as they as they start up. Luckily, there were lots of, there were lots of pain points. So we did we did have a painkiller, but we were probably, you know treating we, we thought we were treating a broken arm and we were re- really treating a broken leg <laughs> it's kind of slightly different strange analogy but you know what i, I mean. like it no i like the analogy of the vitamin <laughs> and the painkiller 
Yeah, I think you know, we all make assumptions, don't we? And it's all about testing those assumptions as the product is being developed. Because one thing for sure is when you start off building something, the assumptions you make are not going to be correct. It's a question of how far the variance is from the original and also to what degree you've got one way to adjust to keep it to, to adjust based on feedback and, and test those assumptions and come up with a product that actually is solving a pain point that the customer at the moment doesn't or isn't able to solve without your product. So it sounds like you guys did that with cohesion, even if it was in a different, let's say, pool of, of potential customers, i.e. much more enterprise than you set out with. So, okay, got it. Tell me now, or talk to me, Craig, a little bit about how did, how did you come to be acquired in, in really, I suppose, quite an early stage of your business. And mm-hmm. let's look at the catalyst there. What happened there then? What was the driver? Well, I mean, we, you know, it's, if you're in the Drupal world, it's impossible to, to not be connected to Acquia. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. Acquia is the commercial arm uh, set up by Dries of the founder of Drupal, right? Who is Dries. And Dries is the CTO of Acquia. He's everywhere. He's the thought leader. He's the driver of the whole project over the last, I think, 22 years since he set it up when he was at college. Um, uh, and, you know, if you go to any Drupal, you know, Drupal cons, the big conferences for Drupal developers and Drupal people, you're going to run into Acquia a lot. So they knew about us. We'd obviously, you know, shared our, our, our vision with them. But what brought us together was actually a joint problem. So we had been pitched into a large um, a large business. I think I can, I'm allowed to say Bayer. Um, so large German pharmaceutical, um, mm-hmm. you know, giant. Uh, and they were an Acquia customer. And they had this task that being put to, to, put to both of us sort of independently, if you like, of we need to re-platform. They were on a platform that was coming to end of licenses. Um, they were re-platforming to Drupal. Um, they'd, be, they'd started to make some progress, but progress wasn't quick enough because they literally had a thousand sites to migrate in, in 12 months or, or something around that, that number. Um, and so we kind of came together over this project, you know, still as independent businesses. Um, and we came to a solution, Bayer, Bayer bought into a joint Acquia stroke Bayer, sorry, joint Acquia stroke cohesion, as it was then known, um, way forward. You know, so there was Acquia infrastructure for hosting, for, you know, a whole lot of other, other tools and their professional services helping them to, to build it. But it was Site Studio as the site building tool that, uh, in the middle of it. Um, so we started working on that project. And I think that that joint project showed the potential uh, mm. in two ways. It showed us the potential of Acquia because they, you know, if, if by and large, the, you know, the biggest customers in the Drupal ecosystem, you know, also work with Acquia in, in some way or other. So we suddenly saw, oh, wow, we, this, all these enterprise customers are a perfect fit that, you know, perhaps we would have difficulty talking to. And vice versa, they also saw, ah, actually, you know, this company that we knew about, um, now we're working on a live project with them. We can see, you know, what the guys are saying is true. You know, we, we were able to roll out sites at a velocity that was just wasn't possible. So we were brought together over this first project, really. And from there, it just, it just you know, snowballed, really. And we were like, okay, you know, we, 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 needed, we knew we needed the resources to become an enterprise business. So we had two choices, one of which was to, to raise more money, you know, because if you're going to do enterprise support for large global companies, you need, you know, bigger support teams, bigger mm-hmm. documentation teams, you know, so in order to, to grow, we'd have either had to raise money or we could essentially partner, stroke, be acquired by Acquia. We chose that route. We thought it was a great fit as, as proven to be. Um, but that was kind of, that was kind of the background. It was like a live project um, that, that kind of got us together, I guess. Well, that's excellent. And was that seen as, as, um, 
the start of a new chapter, or did you have people exit the business at that stage? Um, no, we actually I, we don't have anyone leave um, at all, um, and it, I think it was it was excitement to be honest because we knew we had a great product, but we were having a, some trouble getting. Um, traction in the marketplace for all the reasons we discussed before, right? Suddenly we found ourselves with this enterprise product. Um, suddenly we had to keep building more enterprise type tools into it. So I think there was just a, a load of excitement. And um, to be honest, Acura are a great company. Um, you know, they they are, you know, they are the leaders in, in the Drupal space, right? You know, as I said, the, the CTO is the founder of the Drupal project. So there's no sure. better place for us to sit. Mm-hmm. So no, I think it was excitement. The whole team kept together. In fact, you know, even now we're two and a half years after the acquisition, I'm just trying to think, I, I think only a couple of people out of the whole team have left now, two and a half years later, everyone's still, you know, happily wow. part of the Acura team, maybe, maybe three people. And um, wow. so, you know, it's, and that's, you know, two and a half years later. So we're very much, the core team is still very much together as part of Acrea. We just have an office that says Acrea now in Brighton where we're based. Um, but what it did allow us to do was accelerate, you know, we could, draw on the resources that Acquia have, but not just sales resources, which are important, but, you know, documentation resources, support resources, mm-hmm. um, you know, technical leadership, you know, um, you know, other perspectives rather than just our small team because Acquia now has grown a little bit. I think it's about 1,500 people. They've done other acquisitions as well. I think when we joined them, it was maybe 900. They're also a fast growth company. Um, and so that allowed us to get, to get bigger, quicker, uh, allowed us to learn as a team. You know, we were, we were a small bunch of guys in Brian, you know, so, mm-hmm. Get, being able to pull on those resources of you know, many, many decades of experience from senior um, engineers, technical leaders, et cetera, really helped. And since it's just gone from strength to strength, I'm, I mean, I don't know the exact number of customers I have because, you know, Acquia has thousands. I've got hundreds that are used to Site Studio as part of that. Multiple thousands of websites that are live in the ecosystem and we keep developing and we keep mm-hmm. you know, moving forward. That's a phenomenal story. So, okay, so now you are embedded in a much larger organization an enterprise, basically, and presumably the rules of engagement change quite a bit from being a, a an, an agile startup. What sort of challenges have you had to overcome? And yeah, that would be the first question. I suppose, yeah, what are the what are the takeaways? What have you learned during that journey in the last two and a half years? Yeah, obviously, you know, I mean, the reason startups. Um, our startups and enterprises sometimes struggle to move as quickly as startups is, is because you don't you kind of have, don't have those barriers, right? There's mm-hmm. positives and negatives to that. So clearly, when you start joining an enterprise, I think consistency of delivery. Um, it doesn't mean we weren't delivering as a team, but we were more, I guess, more agile in a way. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. that it doesn't work in an agile way. We do. We you know we obviously do that from a from a um, you know, product development perspective, but you have to plan a little bit further ahead. You also have to think that we're not a standalone product anymore. We are part of a suite of products that's, you know, we call it the open DXP. So it's like the idea of, you know, an open source at its heart, i.e. Drupal, and then, you know, products that are built on top of that to help our customers have this open DXP rather than a full proprietary stack that you might find with some of the other TMS providers. But it also means things, you know, have to work together. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the big things was we started to start working across multiple teams and, and kind of trying to get resources available in other teams to do work together. You know, so, for example, Site Studio now works with accurate personalization, for example. But obviously, that's not a single team effort. It's a multi-team effort because they have to do stuff as well as, as us, right? And likewise with, with other products. So that's definitely one thing. Um, planning windows get longer, but that's inevitable as well. I mean, to be honest, that might have happened a little bit even as we matured, even if we'd stayed independent. But you have to think a bit longer, longer term, and be more consistent. As I say, you know, if you if you miss something as a startup, it's you're still pushing as hard as you can. So, but there's no, it's not, it's not. Um, 
not such a big issue, I guess. But you know, with with a you know company with investors such as as Aquio, you have to be more consistent about your delivery. You have to be better about your planning. Um, you know, and, and all those things. But on the, on the flip side, there's much more resources there. You know, we can just you know plug into the software systems they have. We you know, all stuff that we were looking at but couldn't afford as a startup. You know, it's great having all those tools available. We can you know about my domo dashboards, and you know I can see much more about my product information. So there's a lot of positives as well. Um, and I guess you know readjusting from that to that that kind of new cadence, if you like, of just you know thinking a little bit further ahead, um, planning a little bit more deeply than we did. Um, making sure that you're thinking about the multi-product solutions uh, and, and stakeholder management, obviously, as well, because, you know, again, larger businesses, it's making resource decisions as well. Should we spend our money over here? Should we do this integration? Should we do, do that? And, and obviously, you have to fight your corner, whereas we as directors of the of cohesion, we just decide what we're going to do, whereas now we've got to go, you know, quite rightly and justify what you know, what, what's the most important projects that we should be working on, justifying to other product needs, that I need some of their resources to do this integration. Yeah, but I've got other, you know, they've got other things on their backlog, right? So it's it's that kind of awesome. stakeholder management and stuff, which is it's also really important, I think. Hmm. Making yeah, sure people that's... understand the product. No, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, so you've gone from being sort of a, an agile entrepreneur where you and your small team make decisions quickly to then going into an organization where you, yeah, as you said, you know, obviously you've got the challenges of merging this product into the portfolio, which sounds like you've done well. But as you said, you've got to be a, a diplomat as well because you've got all these stakeholders. You've got to be, you've got to have those soft skills that that are mm. talked about in the marketplace, but aren't always there. And they don't always go hand in hand with a with an entrepreneur per se. So I'd imagine that's been first of all the fact that you guys, most of you, if not all of you, are still there speaks volumes. Secondly, the fact that you've managed to to take that transition and move from being entrepreneurial to managing stakeholders and the politics, no doubt, involved in that. It's not, I would say, I wouldn't say that's very common. I'd say that's more uncommon than perhaps common. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, I think there was a really strong team there. I mean, I, I, when, when I went into Acquia, I focused on the, on the product piece. We were lucky, our CEO um, and the sort of original founder, if you like, of, of cohesion as he brought the team together, a guy called Drew, Drew Griffiths. Um, he, you know, he he realised that that kind of those soft skills, those um, kind of being ambassador for for, for cohesion as a as a team, especially mm-hmm. since obviously you know distance doesn't help either. So there's a there's a UK office in Reading, but that's very there's there's no other product teams there. That's much more around sales support, account management, etc. So most of the product teams. Certainly for the core products are over in Boston, so you have the time difference. And so Drew was Drew took that on as a sort of a mission of him, his, and he's got you know he's got great skills in, in that area. And he he spent a lot of time in Boston making sure people understood the business differences, etc. And while I focused on the product, and there's another another guy called David B who was part of the, the founding group who who likewise you know focused on on the kind of product. He was kind of the product designer. Um, so he led that that side of it. So he it was his vision about how it looks, how it behaves, the UX, et cetera. So he took on that integration with the business and working with the UX team within Acquia. I took more of the product management role and 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 drew, you know, went and did the, as you say, the kind of the business integration piece, I guess we, we want to call it, and, and making sure people understand how we worked, what we what we were, what the product was, et cetera, and especially at leadership level. And then spent a lot of time in Boston in the first year. You know, because it's just hard to do on Zoom. This is kind of pre-lockdown, right? Lockdown happened after six months, six months afterwards. Yeah. So the first six months we were pre, 
are a slightly different situation. So um, a lot of time, you know, in doing those in-person relationships, actually, that, that are important and transatlantically doing those. Um, and that was, that was critical, I think. And did you enjoy that aspect of it, being on that side of the pond for a while? Because I know you were in New York for several years as a, a senior VP of um, e-consultancy, weren't you? Yeah, prior to that, I was, I was, yeah, I, I, yeah, I spent five years there when I was at e-consultancy before before cohesion. So I know mm-hmm. I, I, I love being in the US. It's, a, it's, a, it's a great place. But um, I think it was, it was less of, in this case. It was just about you had to at the beginning. I mean, I still like to be spending more time in person with some of my colleagues. But at the beginning, it was really important that we spent time in Boston. You know, it was mm-hmm. really important that people understood the product, especially since you know, the, 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 Acme were a Drupal company. We were based on Drupal, but we, again, even to a lot of people internally, Acme were kind of breaking the way Drupal worked in a good way, it turns out. But we had a lot of stakeholder management, a lot of friends to win, uh, even internally, because it, it was different. You know, so mm-hmm. if, you're, you know, if you're a traditional Drupal background developer, you know, we had we had to we had to get them around to, to our way of thinking because we we you know as I say we do things a different way. Um, so those those personal relationships, I think, and spending time over there were, were really critical. Uh, and just you know, understanding that people are going to have questions when a new business is, is acquired, and that you have to spend that you have to spend time making sure that you know that your colleagues understand what your business is when you when you acquire and and to begin to be fair there was you know again there was the whole team put together as there is with all the acquisitions with that queer um to to manage that integration you know whether it's from a training perspective from a systems perspective so there's a basically a hot team that's put together for depends on the size of the integration from you know for three months to six months in order to manage that we were quite small for for an acquisition you know 15 people um you know, since then, you know, they bought a, a CDP, um, they bought a, a, da, a dam system, and um, which is the most recent one widened. So that's 150, 170 people, I think, some, something along those lines being integrated. So obviously, that's much harder than, than 15, but it's still important to do it properly. And I think the fact that, you know, most of the team is still there just indicates how, you know, that, it, that it's worked well. No, no, I'd agree. I think, I think what you've just described really is the importance of FaceTime you know, having that personal relationship. And obviously over the last 18 months plus, that has been less of the case. And hopefully now that's all coming back. But even if you meet, even if with a remote team, and I've worked with companies where you have a thousand employees that are remote, um, they do get together regularly, Um, not all at once. And it's such an important part of just, you know, improving the working relationship it's essential. I, I can't think of uh, why or why you wouldn't do that, or companies that are remote that don't do that if they're successful. Uh, you know, it's, it's essential. No, I, I agree, and, and likewise, Acquia. You know, the the there was challenges um, due to to the um, COVID, but um, possibly less challenges than some companies because we were actually had a quite a large remote workforce already. We were set up for remote work. Anyway, we have multiple offices around the place, but also individuals. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what percentage is, but quite a large percentage of our business um, all, already work remotely. But as you say, we regularly got people together at events. You know, we had, we'd have a sales and marketing kickoff and everyone would come that was in those teams, et cetera, R&D. And so there was regular FaceTime, even though we had that kind of distributed workforce. And of course, missing that for the last 18 months is, is, is tricky because you, you, it, it, I always find that if you already have a strong relationship with somebody, Zoom kind of works okay, 
But yeah. if there's somebody new comes into role and you have to start the relationship, it's quite hard on Zoom because everyone's just a little bit, you know, more distant and you can't you can't really just sit down and kind of get to know them. That's not that's not an Acquia challenge. It's a it's an everyone challenge. And no, hopefully, definitely. hopefully we'll see this year more of that face to face coming back. But um, let's. Let us hope so. As you know, in the UK, it's uh, it's pretty much sort of opened up now. Um, mm. Probably the most it's been for a long time. So we're hopefully on mm. the on the right track there. Okay, one of the other um, one of the other challenges, Craig, having gone into an enterprise, is that the the volume of data that you had access to, presumably, just increases exponentially overnight. How, as a product manager, have you? Uh, been able to utilize that and what have been the challenges yeah so data is an interesting uh, interesting one i am um, i mean obviously product managers whether it's you know any type of data you know um it is kind of a lifeblood of, of product management right you want to see what your users are doing if you've got new mm-hmm. features coming on you want to kind of re- you often would do some research on them um i think you know the the, the problem is is are you yeah, especially when you've got a new product, are you being led entirely by the data or are you just being informed by the data? I prefer to take a sort of data-informed approach because I think sometimes you have to have opinionation yourself. You're, you're a product team. You know, good UX, you know, good product feature re- research is, is important. But sometimes you also just have to take some leaps as well. So I think data, data, data can be blinding as well because it can take you down cul-de-sacs. It can sort of stop you kind of thinking in, a, in an innovative way. But yeah, it's been great having the data, especially as we have more customers and we've managed to, you know, obviously integrate kind of telemetry into the product. And obviously then, you know, I mentioned Domo before having access to those kind of enterprise tools to bring all the data into one place. So you can see what, you know, all your, you know, all your kind of product data in one place is, is, is really, really good. Um, but I think, I think, you know, and again, you know, talking to customers you know and, and that is the data set essentially it's just a you know different type of, of, of data set i think it's really important and again you know we want to do that more we've got that process going on at the moment actually where we're, we're going out and talking to our customers again you know it's an ongoing process but we've got a big push this quarter um because again you know the you know sitting down with them and when i say talking to them we're kind of doing proper you know kind of ux research kind of really diving into some of the, some of them about the product i think you know talk, talking to them in detail and asking them to do things with the product and, and actually doing the proper research is really critical as well because again i know if you i don't know if you I, i'm sure you have um you know watch watch people doing proper ux research and you're doing a product design and it's like you think you've done everything and you've done wireframes and tested it and you've done some more stuff and tested it and you built it and tested it and then you get the product ready and then you, you put them you know real users in front of them and they're you know they're, they're can't find things and they're, they're struggling to use the product and and whatever and it's like you're, you're almost behind the mirror i don't know if you've been to one of these ux sessions you're behind the mirror going it's the big red button in front of you. <laughs> Just, you know. so you always find new stuff by, by, by doing stuff live i think um but um, yeah, and, and we have such a mix of customers as well that when you get data and you kind of pull them, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment, again, is trying to understand the subtleties within our data. So, you know, a, a, an enterprise user is very, very different from, a, from a, perhaps one of our smaller customers or, or an agency in terms of how they use the product and their levels of sophistication. And you've got to think about the personas using it as well. Do they have a design background? You know, and trying to, trying to kind of unravel all those data sets you know, it's easy, you know, did, you know, which parts of the product did they use is kind of easy because you've got the hard data. Why did they use them is a much harder question. <laughs> so, yeah, or why didn't they use them is a much harder question. Yeah, no, I have been behind those, those mirrored um, 
rooms and I have shouted. Uh, it's in a similar vein to you. Uh, so, yeah, good. So great, great journey, Craig. And congratulations to you on what you've done thus far, because it's uh, it's impressive. And I also um, know Acquia as a company before you joined there and just watching what they have done and how they've done it is uh, is, is, is impressive as well. Um, so your journey, I suppose, a quick question. Um, what has been the most helpful resource in the roles that you've played, let's say from cohesion onwards, that have really helped you um, along your career? Oh, my goodness. Um, I, I want to flip that slightly and, and, and actually do it in a slightly different way. If you're talking about mm-hmm. resources, it's people. And so they go right back to the beginning of my career. And, and even today, you know, being able to pull on ex-colleagues from ex-businesses that, you know, I've built relationships with that. There's nothing like, you know, the advice of your peers or, you know, or, or, or other experts. You can't know everything, right? That's, that's clear. It's a complex world. None of us can know everything about even the space we're, we're working in, never mind, you know, spaces which are transcend, you know, separate, separated from us. So, you know, I think building the relationships to be able to ask people and those, you know, being involved in those communities has been super helpful. You know, I'm, I'm a member of several of them, largely closed networks. Some of them actually founded by some of my old colleagues. Um, and, you know, so, you know, LinkedIn is kind of a place for the big networks, but actually these smaller, these smaller communities that are around specific issues that are a little bit more closed, uh, not in terms of not accepting members, but they're, you know, they're not, public you have to be invited or or sure. apply and then you and then you get to and just drawing on people's experiences because you know it's it's a complex world especially when you talk about technology it's easy to make mistakes it changes so quickly i mean you know educating yourself to keep up on the latest technologies the latest versions the latest capabilities you know is is, is tough uh, for any individual to do so i think those are really important um you know the, mm. the, the real people <laughs> if you like no i you know i I totally concur on that. I think um, really it does come down to the payback um, is compounded with how you develop those relationships really to help other people because it all comes back, doesn't it? It's a full circle. You just, if you develop, if you put the time in, whether it's your, the people that you're recruiting or your, or the managers above you or the people or the executives or the co-founder, you're developing relationships, you're building trust, you're building your reputation. And so you do have, you earn that right to go back to people at a later stage and say, look, I need your input. And of course, they're, they're willing to do that because of that yeah. relationship. So, yeah, that's a really good point. And although it might seem obvious, it's, it needs, I think it needs reminding and it's worth putting the time in. And Yeah, um, but I think it's what is important there um, is that it is, it, you, you can't expect to pull out of it unless you've put into it, right? And it mm-hmm. is, it's, you know, so helping others is also uh-huh. part of that. It's part of that equation and, and, and participating when there is questions that you can help with or people that you can help introduce or, you know, mistakes you've made, frankly. You go, no, I would not do that way. <laughs> you know, that, that's a very useful. So, yeah, it's push and pull, right? You, if you, if you, uh, it's a bit like a bank account, I guess. You've got to put some in before you can make significant withdrawals. <laughs> you know. a, good, a good analogy. Okay, so what's one piece <laughs> of advice, Craig, do you wish you had received when you started out? Oh my goodness! Um, a couple, well, a couple of things come to, to mind. I wish we dug deeper into the pain points like we talked about before. You know, mm-hmm. really, we thought we were, but I think, you know, like um, simplicity is hard. I think the same with 
you know, so it's easy to create something that's complex and difficult to use. It's hard. It's actually very hard. You know, as, as consumers, we have an expectation that, that things should be easy to use, but actually making things genuinely easy to use is hard. Likewise, with, with you know, really understanding proper pain points, you know, you can get a veneer quite quickly, but you, you have to keep diving and keep uncovering it until you can't go any deeper and you really, really understand it. So spending more time there um, would have probably helped us. You know, what pains were we really, you know, who, what problems were we solving for who? We kind of had an idea and luckily it wasn't too far away. It was close enough. We could do that small pivot and, and, and keep the business together. I think a little bit of luck came in there for sure. <laughs> um, but, you know, I've I done that a little bit more. Um, we also didn't plan for scaling. We were so focused on the build and the MVP and the first customer, we never really thought about scaling. And of course, if you're going to be successful, you have to think about, you know, you know, you don't have to plan every detail, but you have to think about what the future holds, right? Otherwise, um, you're, I, I guess, you're just leaving, you know, difficult decisions further down the road, right? And I say, you know, not everything can be planned for. And so we hadn't really, you know, I mean, I guess it partly was because of product market fit changing as well, but we really hadn't planned for growth in enough detail. So we're like, we started getting successful. It's like suddenly, ah, there's an awful lot of other things we had to think about, you know, as I say, you know, support teams, documentation teams, just mm-hmm. infrastructure, technical teams, legal, legal advice for contracts, because suddenly we were with larger, larger mm-hmm. enterprises and we'd go into a buying process that, with them that would take weeks and, you know, and we just didn't think about that enough. You know, and it's hard because, you know, you're so focused. You've got a small team, you've got a limited budget. You've, you know, in our case, we've raised money. You know, it's quite hard to think about the stuff that you might need to spend, but you don't have the money for now based on sales you might have. But you, I no, think absolutely. you should, you know, I think you need to plan that a bit further just so there's no surprises. Yeah. And um, so I definitely, um, I definitely do that um, a little bit more. Um, yeah, I guess that's two things I would take yeah. away. No, that's 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 helpful. Thank you for that. So I know that you've um, you've also got a an external interest in something quite different, Craig, which is to do with <laughs> yes. our four legged friends. And, and in the UK, dogs are. Well, I think it's about. I think we were talking about that, Craig. I thought it was about twelve. Uh, I thought eight million. Eight million dogs in the UK. I think you said yeah. it was even more than that, wasn't it? Because even the, code, the last time I read. Yeah, the last time I read about it, I think someone said there was 12 million now. Oh, I think I think you're right. I think we're both right. There's just a, there's just been yeah. a massive acceleration in a short period of time. So your data has not caught up uh, with, your, <laughs> yeah. with the, the market. I need to refresh I, I, it. I read somewhere. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that there's been two million new dogs um, in you know since lockdown because people are at home. Um, you know, they've, they've decided to have more time. There's there's a different mm. work life balance, which I think is going to stay to some extent there. I don't think I don't think the five days a week, well, mm. not for everybody anyway, the five days a week into London, and, and it's necessarily true. But I think the pandemic has accelerated what was probably already a trend, but there was a, a lot of resistance in the market to do so. But was already a trend of why aren't we more distributed? Why can't we live? You know, uh, have a better work life balance? Why do we have to get on a train in order to perform our functions and yeah. i get that's not for everybody i get it's not for every mm-hmm. business there's obviously mm-hmm. certain jobs you can't do that uh, you know we, we shouldn't um we should be too presumptive but for a lot of people and so yeah the, the dog thing has gone gone crazy so i just it was actually an ex-colleague of mine that set it up and i'm just an investor in it but um mm-hmm. but it's been an interesting journey that they're they're going on and, and again they're, they're they, they did the same thing which was what you know how do we do something different you know so um again there's a one of the one of the founders uh russell comes from a challenger brand background he'd, he'd been a consultant for challenger you know consulting on challenger brand design mm-hmm. setup mm-hmm. Uh, for, for many many years 
And, you know, so he always looked at the market from a slightly different place. And he was like, you know, and he was a dog owner himself. And he was like, well, why does everything, why is it, why do you have to go to a pet store to buy a dog treat, you know, or a supermarket to buy a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a very big branded one. But, you know, why could, why, why couldn't you have it? Um, why, why aren't dog treats available where you're with your dog, like in a park or a pub or a cafe, you know, or, or a gift store, you know? So, and, and the reason was, is because people weren't thinking like that and they hadn't made the leap. This is his argument. You know, he said they hadn't made the leap. And so it was all packaged in a way that was suitable for pet stores. So it's still spelt. Um, it kind of looked a bit brown and beigey, most of them, um, you know, because they think that dogs like that. But of course, you're not selling to dogs. You're selling to the owner, right? The dogs, <laughs> dogs can't read. <laughs> you know? so, so it's always weird to go, well, it's brown because dogs like brown bones. It's like, they can't read, guys. <laughs> so um, so he, he came up with a strategy, you know, along with, uh, you know, the other co-founders, but he came. He came up with a strategy that said, "Look, you know, why can't it be brown and bright colours and packaged so that it seals the spells in?" And you know, you know, other problems. You know, it's like I, I don't know, Paul. Do you have, do you have a dog? Yes, I've got a dog. Do. I have a so Boston Terrier. Lovely. So you'll have had you'll have had the same issue as as, as most mm-hmm. people, I'm sure, at some point. We've got dog treats on you. You know, I, I presume you, you give your dog an occasional treat, and yeah. then you go to you go to back to your jacket after a rainy walk the next day to go out to the pub or something. You put your hand in your pocket, and it's like, oh, scrudgy, scrudgy biscuits, you know, uh-huh. or whatever. So again, the, the tin is a you know the tin that they came up with as a design is you know it's practical because it lots of smells and it doesn't get wet and and we can go on you know the names are different the postman and roast flavors you know the way they go to market and then and, and it's, it's been a fascinating journey watching those guys you know i as i said you know I, i'm an investor as opposed to day-to-day uh, mm. involved but it's been fascinating watching their their journey and how successful it's been so far but i mean they're, again they're, they're a startup but I, I, one thing i would say was interesting there because one of the guys that set it up was what is an ex-colleague and going back to the point we we made which was uh, earlier on about learnings about planning planning for growth early on that's one mm-hmm. of the learnings he took away as well from previous businesses and, and and that's one of the things he's kind of i think built into this particular business venture of his it's exciting and, and my dog loves them and so i'm an advocate i'm out there shaking the tim when i'm in the park and you know doing my doing the best to to, to push the brand around but yeah, it's I love fun. it. Very different I love from it. software. <laughs> yeah, so. I love it. And and I've I've seen the product. Um, it's great visually. I think the the um, the idea behind it, the fact you want to get it into the places where people are actually with their dogs as opposed to in a, a hypermarket somewhere is is really strong. So I wish you all the best with that. Do you want to mention the name? Yeah, it's, it was is. So it was is dot dog. So um, I'm sure the guys would uh, love to hear from people. Um, how do you, how do you spell it's in a lot of stores now? Was it W Z I S W Z I S dot dog? Anyway, and I think they're in a lot of stores. Um, you know, from what I what the guys are telling me, they're they've had a very good last few months as people have learned about the product. So I think it's I think they said they're in 150 stores now. You can also buy it online. So they're, they're doing they're doing great guns. So yeah, hopefully, excellent. Well done on that, Craig. It's been a, a real pleasure having you as my guest today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. Um, before we wrap up, would you like to tell listeners where they can find out a little bit more about you and how to get in touch? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, my, my work address is you know, craig.hanna at acquia.com. I'm obviously on LinkedIn. If they know you, they'll find me because we're obviously linked on LinkedIn in ourselves. But um, um, yeah, I mean, obviously happy to, to talk to people and 
Build that network <laughs> out because you never know. Build those networks out. <laughs> and answer questions, right? I will, you know, I will happily answer questions uh, as best to best of my ability if people people want help to be able to give. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And and thanks again for, for joining us. Um, have a fabulous day. Have a fabulous day. Um, and as we say here on B2B Uncovered, never stop learning. We never know everything. And even if you think you do, it's always changing. So look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. And I couldn't agree more. Thanks again for joining me on B2B Uncovered. If you liked this episode, then please hit the subscribe button. Want to go the full hog? Hey, yeah, I'd love a rating from you. Just tap the number of stars that you'd like to give us. As we're just getting going, that's going to help tremendously. Thank you.